Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can also be complicated and confusing. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you. You'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. When was the last time you were having a conversation about marketing and someone said, is the approach you're planning to take inclusive for people of all abilities? Let me be the first to go on record as saying, I have not asked that question. And that's, that's on me. That's my bad. As Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we can do better. For marketing to be truly good, we need to do better in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access. Marketing can play a critical role in shifting the tide on things like racism by being proactively and unapologetically anti-racist. To be good, marketing needs to be deeply and expansively inclusive. We know that, and now it's a question of how do we do that? My guest today, Elizabeth Ralston, has some ideas for us. She opens the door to a perspective that is often overlooked in marketing, especially as we think about marketing and making it more inclusive, and that is how marketing lands for those who are deaf and hard of hearing. Elizabeth invites us to reframe disabilities as assets and reminds us that there's only upside to making marketing accessible for all and to all. Only upside, my friends. So let's dive into this really wonderful, eye-opening, heart-opening conversation with my guest, Elizabeth Ralston. Welcome to today's episode of the Marketing for Good podcast. With me today is Elizabeth Ralston. Now, Elizabeth has more than 20 years of experience working with nonprofits, government agencies, and academic institutions. She has a Master of Public Health degree from the University of Michigan and a Certificate of Nonprofit Management from the University of Washington, a certificate that is near and dear to my heart because I taught in that program for so long and met so many amazing people. She was a Peace Corps volunteer in Malawi, and that's where Elizabeth experienced firsthand the powerful impact a person can have on another's life. She has devoted her life to public service ever since. Her work to showcase an organization's story and impact in a compelling way, attracting more program participants, volunteers, donors, and community partners, and any and all other stakeholders that are important to the organizations that she's working with, that's really the core of her work. Now, Elizabeth does all this, and she is deaf, and she uses two cochlear implants to hear. So one of the core tenets of marketing for good is accessibility. And so I was so, so grateful to Elizabeth when she reached out and said, hey, I think we should talk about how marketing impacts or doesn't those who are deaf and hard of hearing. So that's part of what we're going to talk about today. 
Elizabeth is also an avid patron of the arts, so we're going to drill down on that a little bit. She founded the Seattle Cultural Accessibility Consortium, that's a mouthful, <laughs> which is a grassroots effort to connect arts and cultural organizations with the information and resources to improve accessibility for people of all abilities. The consortium is the first of its kind in Seattle. I'm really curious to hear, Elizabeth, if there are others that you model this after, but it's, but it's first for us here in Seattle to address inequities in accessing arts, events, programs, and spaces. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Hello. <laughs> Hello. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. So, yes, this is the first of its kind in Seattle. And I basically modeled it after the Chicago Cultural Accessibility Consortium. So there are many different consortia around the U.S. There's about maybe 15, oh. 17 consortia around the U.S., and a friend of mine said to me, well, it's a long story. I'm sure we'll get there at some point. Uh -huh. You need to start something in Seattle. And I realized that there was nothing like this in Seattle based on my research. And yeah, so it was definitely a journey in terms of figuring out how unique we wanted to be and how we wanted to follow in the first steps of other organizations around the U.S. Mm -hmm. Or not. Uh, I, I would assume that was part of the questions that you asked yourself is how much do we want to be like Chicago or these other 15 places versus unique to Seattle. Okay, I, I want to get there. I have lots of questions about the consortium. I find it really fascinating. Can we start with having you share with us how you got started in your accessibility journey and like what, what led you down this path? Well, so as you mentioned earlier, I'm deaf and I read lips and I use two cochlear implants here. And I say this because there's so much diversity within any disability community. And so um, many people think I sign and I don't sign. So there's a continuum, right? Some people sign, some people are, or, and some people do cute speech. So I make that distinction purposefully because I want people to understand that I don't sign and I read lips, etc. So growing up, my parents were very avid arts and theater goers. And so they took me everywhere. They took me to musicals, they took me to museums. And of course, going, you know, um, back then, I'm not too old, but back then, there was no captioning, there were no assistive listening devices, there were no interpreters, there was nothing. And so I grew up taking scripts to uh, a play or a musical. And while well, that's fine, but um, I did run into many barriers doing that. It's kind of a pain looking up and down. Uh -huh. And uh, I would often get scolded by other audience goers because of my tiny, tiny flashlight, a pen light that I would bring so that I could read the script. Anyway, um, fast forward, I just became a really big lover of the arts, thanks to my parents, and I got a season subscription to one of my favorite theaters in town. And I started thinking, you know, I can only go to one caption show per run of the show. And I'm a busy person. Sometimes I can't go to that one particular show. And I started thinking with my public health hat on about health equity and 
accessibility. And so that's how I got started in thinking about, well, how can we make the arts more accessible to people of all abilities, not just hearing loss, but people with vision issues, people with neurodiverse conditions, physical disabilities, you name it. Okay, I have a, because it's a, it's a question about words, okay? Yeah. And it's, you know where I'm going with this probably, which is in your bio, it says people with all abilities, or actually that's pulled from the information about the consortium. Will you share your opinions about the terminology people of all abilities versus the word disability? Well, it's a good question. Disability is a fine word to use. I use people of all abilities to make it even broader because people don't often see themselves as having a disability. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make sure I included those people as well. Yeah, that, that's pretty much um, how I see it that way. So you're not offended by the term disability. It's more like, oh, huh, I don't think of myself as having a disability. That's weird that you do, because I don't think of myself that way. Well, it's interesting, because when I grew up, I tried really hard to fit in. I wanted to be like everyone else. And so for a long, long time, even after I accepted, I had a hearing loss, and I was much more forward about it and open about it. I still wanted to be seen as a professional who was a health educator, who was a mom, who was um, a storyteller. I didn't want to be known as that person who has a disability. And, you know, it took me a while to realize that, oh, wow, it's actually an asset. I could Uh. help people, you know, um, understand what it means, understand what it means for anybody experiencing barriers to accessing anything. And I chose the arts because it's something I'm passionate about and it's something that I'm quite familiar with. And because I have my nonprofit background and I have been an interim in an interim leadership role at Spectrum Dance Theater, I already knew people in the arts community and I thought it would be a good place to start. Do you dance? Uh, I love to dance, but <laughs> in private. <laughs> Sidebar. <laughs> I love it. I love dancing. I need to do it more of it. And I thought about actually taking one of the classes, but I just didn't have time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. My daughter's a dancer, and I periodically will say like, well, maybe I should take a dance class. Now she's almost 16. And she's like, go for it, mom. You do you, you know, but before she was like, oh, not at my studio. And I'm like, oh, it'll be great. I'll take hip hop, honey. And she's like, no. Yeah, no, so unfair. You could do it at any age. I mean, there was a class, a spectrum of people who were over the age of 60 in the dance class. It was so inspiring. Now I'm tempted to just talk about dance. I really do find it such an incredible art form. I love spectrum dance. My daughter dances at Exit Space, and there's just a lot happening in the dance community right now around inclusivity, around diversity, around anti racism, around accessibility. And it's like, it's just making me so proud on so many levels. So, okay, speaking of that, so diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, all of this has been. I would say gaining traction over the past few years and now, of course, is just front and center, finally. 
I mean, even a few months ago, words like racism, anti-blackness, white supremacy, I mean, we were tiptoeing around those words pretty delicately. And now um, we're not because, because that's no longer okay to tiptoe around them. Uh, if you can't say them, you're not gonna be able to address them. So it's just everything has changed. With that, I would love to hear your thoughts on where does the deaf and hard of hearing community fit into all of this, into this movement and this energy towards diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility? Well, I can only speak from my perspective as one individual. I can't really speak for others, but um, I think the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement have really laid bare the barriers that exist for people, whether it's black people, whether it's people um, with disabilities, it's really kind of opened up this kind of room that's been needing to open for a long, long time. So I think that uh, one of the things that I've learned through this journey is when I first started, I was thinking about accessibility for everyone, just broadly, uh, people with disabilities. But over time, I realized after meeting people, um, mostly BIPOC, that I have privilege as a white woman. And so I was only seeing it through that lens, even though on the other side, I am part of the marginalized community, the disability community, because I face lots of barriers too. But people of color and black people are um, they face especially difficult barriers in that. So in issues of intersectionality are really important to highlight during this time. And I think that um, this is something I've really committed myself to do um, going forward is to amplify and highlight BIPOC with disabilities and the barriers that they face when it comes to accessibility in civic life and the arts. That's beautiful. I want to go back to the consortium for a minute, mm -hmm. the Seattle Cultural Accessibility Consortium. I don't know how many syllables that is, but it's a lot of syllables, Elizabeth. Well, I knew you would bring this up because of the word of fire, and I knew I should have done that before I came on, but you won't That's believe good. it. It used to be called the Seattle King County Cultural Accessibility Consortium, and I said, I can't deal with this. I have to shorten it. And so we just joined it by two words. I hope that's okay. Fantastic. <laughs> 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 um, so the, the mission is to connect arts and cultural organizations with information and resources to improve accessibility for people of all abilities. So when you created this, you know, what's your what's your vision? Like, if you could wave your your magic wand. What does the consortium make possible? I think the consortium has made possible a dialogue about what accessibility could look like from a universal design perspective. And it's really good timing right now as um, you know the art sector has been particularly hit hard by this. And as they start to rebuild what is that going to look like? What is that new normal going to look like? Um, and here's a beautiful chance to use universal design principles to create something that anyone can enjoy and not just 
for this person or that person and not having to think about access for different groups of people, but just creating spaces, programs, and events for people, for anybody. So I'm really excited about how we have entered into this dialogue about what this could look like. And can you be specific when you say enter into a dialogue? Who's, who's in the dialogue? So enter a into a dialogue with community partners, with arts organizations, with staff, with funders, you know. Um, Anyone who cares about arts and making it accessible to all? Well, I mean, arts is a human right. I mean, um, we all know from a public health perspective that if you're engaged in the arts, you'll be happier, you'll be happier, you'll feel like you're part of a community. And so it's kind of a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. So arts is so interesting, because I agree with you on so many levels about its importance, its role, I mean, its historical role in terms of civic life. And yet I find it so interesting that it is thought of as a luxury. And I'm not sure when that happened, but I feel like, well, COVID and the pandemic and everything that's happening, you know, uh, has just sort of, again, brought to light this, or not brought to light, but this idea that arts is sort of like a nice to have, as opposed to a must have, it feels like that's coming up again. And I'm curious, you, I mean, this is just, you know, outlier perspective that I have and, and just one, one person's perspective. Are you hearing that um, come up in conversation? Uh, well, I'm hearing it that arts uh, is supposed to be for everyone but not everyone can afford it. Yeah. Um, it's not accessible from a socioeconomic perspective. And yes, I hear about that a lot. And um, educating people that, you know, people with disabilities and um, other low-income people, they can't afford to see um, a $50 um, ticket. They can't pay $50 for a ticket for a show. So yes, there's a lot of um, inequity within that. And um, yes, art should be for all. Public art, for example, is probably the cheapest way to access mm -hmm. it. I but even that. then, that's not always accessible because you have people singing and there are no interpreters, or you have, you have paintings, or you have sculptures, and someone who is low vision couldn't access that. So there's lots of different issues around that, I believe. One, I want to go back to this idea of, or the concept of universal design. And I'm hoping you can share a bit more with listeners what that really means. And then I have a follow-up question. But you start with explaining to us what universal design, I mean, it's sort of implied by the name, but I think that there are some principles to it that are important. So universal design is founded on the, basis of equity and it levels the playing field and it takes into account a space that I'm talking more about physical space. Let's start with that. Um, when you create, let's say you're creating a new architectural space, you're not going to be thinking, okay, we need elevators for people with physical disabilities and you need uh, a mom and baby cry room you're going to be thinking about everything, like how can this space be used by everyone? And I'm not an architect, so I can't really um, dive into the specifics of that. But 
it's more of a um, also a concept that involves all audiences in the planning and design of the space or even the program. So you know the expression, nothing for us without us, or something like that. I'm, yeah. I'm always forgetting that. Um, and so you always have to include people with disabilities and anyone that you're designing something for in that process to make sure that it's just inclusive of everyone. And my understanding, which is limited, I want to say, but when I was reading up on universal design, one of the things that really stood out to me was, and, and I, I was reading about it, um, what made me think of this is I was reading about it as it relates to architecture and building out spaces, was we think of it as like an accommodation, but in fact, when you apply the design principles, it really makes the space better for anybody who's in it. Yes. Exactly. Not just, right. So it's not really an accommodation. It's an elevation of the space. Right. You, you put it beautifully. Yes. It's not, not thinking about accommodations. It's thinking about things that will make it useful and enjoyable by anybody who works in that space. So if you, if you put all the different kinds of people there are, you want to make sure, okay, can this space you know, um, be inclusive and welcoming, and that's a key word, being welcoming to anybody who enters in that space. Okay, I will not get this quote right, and I, and I wish I could attribute it. So with that, <laughs> with that really great preamble or disclaimer, there is this quote which goes something like, it's not, a, it's not that um, you are welcome here, it is that we built this with you specifically in mind. And there's a difference between we, you know, we created this space, whatever the space may be, virtual or in person, and you are welcome to enter the space that we have created. And the difference between that and we created this space because we were so hoping you would be part of this community that you would come here. So we actually had you in our minds and hearts as we were building it. And that feels very substantively different. And although that I didn't come across that in the context of universal design, that's kind of what it feels like and what I think of when I try to try to think about it concretely. Yes, and, um, and if we're going to be talking about marketing, that's a perfect example. Yeah, let's go how, there. Uh, yes, of how you can really draw people in because if they understand that something was designed with them in mind, how perfect can that be? That, another example, um, not really an example of universal design, but a theater that includes people with disabilities in their musicals, in their plays, will be more likely to get people of a much more diverse audience, for example. Mm -hmm. you know, the hiring practices and even having an accessibility statement on the website would be really powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's do talk about marketing because it's a show about marketing. But I feel like the, the context is, is so important and I've just learned a ton from you already in this amount of time. So thank you for that. Let's look at a very specific example of marketing that missed the mark uh, in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, and specifically the message that was sent to deaf and hard of hearing consumers. Okay, so this was in 2017. There's a South African dancer, model, and former beauty queen, Simone Botha Welchemode. Um, and she was part of an advertisement for Virgin Active, which I had not heard of, but turns out it's part of the Virgin Empire, the Virgin brand. So it's a chain of high-end fitness clubs. And she was, she's a 
dancer, professional dancer. And so she was part of Zadvert. Now, background notable is that on the Virgin Active website, they say they believe in catering to all, being a force for good, and making sure every one of their 1.4 million members is treated with, and I quote, care, respect, and attention. So Miss Welshamode wears cochlear implants, and she has since she was 22 months old. So imagine her surprise and indignation when without her permission, her implants were airbrushed out of the picture for the advertisement. And here's what she had to say about that. I quote, they just went and without my permission decided to edit the cochlear implant out because why it doesn't fit with their pretty little picture portraying the perfect life that is virgin active. Well, guess what? Life isn't perfect. No one is perfect. I don't know Miss Welchamode, but I love her. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, she went right to Instagram and was like, absolutely not. You know, and then they course corrected. But I, I just, there's so many things to learn from just this one example. And I know you just have one perspective, but I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty confident you have tracked this more than I have over the course of your life, which is, I mean, that, that is kind of horrifying that you would just, I know airbrushing is very common, um, said that, you know, we could have a whole sidebar on that, but to just not tell her and to, in essence, erase her identity in that way feels so invasive, um, sort of editing for the sake of, of perfection and pursuit of perfection. So, you know, what's your experience with this? Have you seen other examples of it? When you hear that, are, are you surprised in any way? Are you like, oh yeah, there they go again. Yeah, this is a very typical story that we see because disability is seen as something to be fixed and um, not something to be highlighted. So um, that's partly why they took that implant out of the picture because um, they thought it would mar the photos somehow. Mm -hmm. And so um, I totally get why she would react that way because it's part of her. That's who she is. And... And if you take it off, it doesn't really make sense anyway, because yes, it just doesn't make sense. It's part of her. But I don't know if you know, they actually issued an apology. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. Went, you know, so I'm glad that they did the right thing. And yes. I think um, there's so much ignorance and ableism, ableist thinking out there that things um, are developed with ableist thinking. And this is a perfect example of how this universal design principle can come in because you do away with the ableist thinking of how something should look or be or feel. Will you explain for listeners what ableist thinking means? So um, an able-bodied person um, has a certain way of thinking and thinks as an able-bodied person without considering that there are other people who don't have this, a similar situation. So able-bodied comments that are um, dismissive uh, what a person with a disability might face. So um, ping me again later. I'll see if I can come up with some examples. But um, it happens to me a lot. Um, oh, I guess an example would be um, going through um, the cashier line in the supermarket and paying for my stuff and um, a cashier will start signing to me. And so their ableist view is that I sign, and this is how they're going to treat me without really seeing 
without really realizing that I'm speaking to them. So they could speak back to me, but instead they choose to sign. So it's very dismissive and marginalizing in that way, yeah. if that makes sense. Yep, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and Virgin did issue an apology, which is great. And they, they reissued the advertisement unedited, as it were, unairbrushed. But I, I part of what really jumps out at me is, you know, just to reinforce your point, is this assumption that seeing those implants would make people uncomfortable and that what was more important than honoring her identity and who she is fundamentally, it was more important to make people feel comfortable. And I feel exactly. like, you know, th this is marketing. We're having a moment in so many ways. And I, I hope, <laughs> I'm hoping so hard um, that with <laughs> conversations like this, that will will sort of shift this mindset where it's like it's about you know marketing is about optimizing it's about optimizing for target audiences that is all true and there's an opportunity to say to, for for it to be less about being perfect and more about being real like pretty much yeah. on every episode i talk about radical realness and like i imagine a world 5 10 20 years from now where no one would blink at seeing a cochlear implant they'd be like sure but of course right? And yeah, that well. norming of it. And the other thing that then gets lost, and you, you mentioned this at the beginning, but I really, I want to go back to it is that you view it as an asset, right? So to say like, oh, that's a disability and to not simultaneously see the strength and to have that asset frame on it is demeaning. <laughs> um, yeah. And also just a missed opportunity. Right. I think um, I had to go back a little bit in my journey in, in terms of realizing that this was an asset in my professional life. A few years ago, I was you know, um, trying to figure out what was next. And so I, was, um, I left the job feeling pretty confident that I could find another one. And it was around the same time that I, I did that nonprofit certificate program at that, no problem. I have an impressive resume. I've been in the Peace Corps. I've written lots of articles. I've managed programs. I'll get a job, no problem. And two years later, no job. And I was doing a little bit of consulting here and there, but nothing was really sticking. And so I thought, okay, what is going on here? Okay, is this, um, is this some sort of ableism going on? Is it ageism? Is it, who knows what it is? I mean, I'm a very young, a hard person, and you can, you can tell when you meet me, right? So, and I have a lot of good experience, and I started thinking about, okay, what are my real assets, right? What? Because something's not working. And so that's where I got on the track of, oh, I really have a lot of experience talking to people about barriers and educating people about stereotypes. And I mean, I used to do the eye trainings, um, diversity trainings, and that really wasn't the road I wanted to go down because there's so many great people that are doing that work and they should do that work. So I guess where I'm going with this is coming down this road has shown me that I can really be an ally for other people with disabilities who may not have a voice for whatever reason because, um, because of society's perceptions of them. 
And so by starting the consortium, I thought, okay, well, now I can do that. I can say, I know what it's like to have a hearing loss. There's no way you can dispute that. I don't know what it's like to be blind, but I have the resources to find people to educate others. I'm a community, a community connector. I know how to find people and connect people with one another and um, getting them the resources they need to make their programs uh, meaningful to, to participants, to donors, to volunteers, to everybody, really. But it sounds like that was a, a journey and maybe a bit of a mind shift to embracing this as truly, by this I mean being deaf, as an asset and saying, I'm going to really live into this. And Well, maybe and it was a midlife crisis. I don't know. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> Something. They're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> totally. But getting back to this notion of an ally um, when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, and talking about intersectionality of people with disabilities and the whole DEI thing, I think it's really important that able-bodied people and white people become allies, mm -hmm. even much more so now than ever before. And there's so many concrete ways that you can be an ally, but that's a whole other conversation, I guess. It's an important conversation, and it's, yeah. it's not one conversation. It's sort of the conversation, I, I think, societally. And certainly, if we're going to talk about marketing for good and make good on that, it's the conversation that we need to be that we need to be having again and again and again and again. Which brings me to a question about. So I, I think people can wrap their brain around. I hope after hearing you and thinking about Black Lives Matter and all of these other things that. They can, can, it's easy to like conceptually get to a place where you're like, oh, I could apply universal de design to our marketing campaign. Now, translating that into, a, into concrete action steps can be a bit trickier, I think. So how can accessibility be integrated into every aspect of an organization's marketing? Well, I think you should hire me to find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I'm la we're laughing, but Elizabeth, you, you are making uh, a really important point, and so I want to elevate it, if I may, which is there, and actually, we just had this exchange on LinkedIn about the new organization that Akhtar Badshah and Sandra Archibald um, started, and I'm pausing because I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's the mask initiative to wear masks in, in Washington. And you saw that on LinkedIn, and this is it's just such a classic example. It had not occurred to me that it, for someone like you who reads lips, it's like masks are real problematic, right? I almost, I almost showed up wearing a mask because I wanted to, you to see that I have this mask. They have a clear panel in the oh. middle. Um, but I just bought these face shields. By the way, face shields are so much better than masks because ah. they don't rest on your face and you can wear glasses and they're much more comfortable. And they really um, uh, have been shown to be preventive against um, COVID. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, so we're, we laughed about it, but your response, which was beautiful, was, you know, because I said, okay, you know, what can we do? And you were like, well, they should ask, they should ask me. And this point is, if you're not sure, 
reach out to folks who you want to be all inclusive, who you want to bring in and ask. And I, I think there is a hesitation around that. And some of that is very real, you know, for black folks and BIPOC and, you know, everybody who for years has been like trying to educate those of us uh, who walk through the world with a lot of privilege and their work needs to be done. We can't keep asking them, right, to educate us. So I feel like that's a bit tricky and folks maybe aren't quite sure when can I ask and it's okay and it feels like I'm bringing you into the conversation and when and when is that like really did you do the basic research like don't ask me again to educate you well um I guess um at the beginning yes I did the basic research I talked to people and I realized that if any of this is going to take hold then the leadership needs to be on board. Mm -hmm. The board and the leadership, you know, um, they need to understand how critical it is to make things accessible for everyone. I don't know if you're talking about math, but I'm talking about the arts, okay? I'm just being really specific about the arts. Yes, uh, and it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, you could broaden it to include math. And that's the first step into integrating accessibility within the organization is get the leadership on board and the uh, board on board. Because if they're not, then they're not gonna, not gonna be a budget line item. It has to be a budget line item. And when it comes to marketing, when it comes to fundraising, um, when it comes to programs, everything has to have a budget line item for accessibility. Mm -hmm. In the words of the esteemed play, your values are in your budget. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I, ha I have a lot of ideas about how accessibility can be integrated into marketing specifically. So first of all, if you don't market that you are accessible, nobody's going to come, right? Right. Actually, you will get more people if you market that you're accessible. And, and it makes amazing business sense when you think about it mm. one in five people has a disability so um, one in five people has a disability one in five people in america has a disability and that is only going to increase as the population gets older right and so in 2030 which is 10 years from now we are going to have one in five people will be 65 years old or older that's so 10 years from now and so businesses and organizations have to rethink who their target population is going to be. And so that's why accessibility becomes really, really important for that population. Yeah, there's no true downside from a business perspective to making things inclusive for all. In fact, it sounds like you, you, would, you would increase possibly by 20% just out of the gate if you really implemented exactly. that. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly, exactly. No downside. Exactly. So having that accessibility statement front and center, mm -hmm. making your website accessible for people who have low vision um, would be good. And um, having captions and transcripts for people who are deafblind who rely on transcripts and people who are deaf rely on captions. So there's lots of ways to make videos and social media accessible. And yeah, I mean, really sending the message that you are welcoming to our people is going to be a really important part of that marketing message. Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing a step. So, so, you know, 
the Claxon method. But I've really been thinking about this and you know revisiting it and wondering in what ways can can that be made more accessible and explicitly anti-racist. So it's you know what does success look like? Who's your target audience? And I think in there, you know, it would it would just go so far to when we get to the third step, which is how are you going to reach your target audience? Asking this question, and is this accessible to everyone? right? People of all abilities. Will whatever we're doing be accessible to people of all abilities? I'm, I mean, I can sit here and think back on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these conversations that I've had with clients. And, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't asked that question consistently in any way. So I'm going to commit to starting to do that today and encourage others to do it because I can, then I can take those conversations and play out how we might have been you know, we might have seen that a certain way of phrasing something and definitely where you place it, you know, uh, in terms of website or Instagram or, you know, pamphlet or whatever it's going to be, wasn't accessible to all. Uh, and the course correcting that can happen if that's asked in the planning phase and not after things are done. I think that can be really powerful. So thank you. Yes, and I think also I, I, I commend you for that. By the way, I think that's fantastic. Um, I think another population that tends to be left out are the people with neurodiverse conditions. Mm. So people with autism, people with um, other intellectual and behavioral challenges. When now that everything is switching to virtual programming, is very challenging, especially for those kind of folks because. I mean, actually, they like virtual. I mean, they actually prefer that than having to go out somewhere. But um, there's a lot of things that you have to be aware of to make a true virtual experience accessible for um, an autistic person, for example. Many of these people need to move around. They need to um, do something called stimming, where they move their hands a lot. And many people um, can't sit for long periods of time. They have invisible disabilities. And that's another chapter of the population we have to consider. Yes, um, yes, yes. So committing to all, all abilities is really important because hearing loss, blindness, and physical disabilities are the top three that people recognize immediately and not those other two. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine some listeners at this point are like, Oh, like overload, overload, overload. I can barely do my marketing as it is. And now I have to factor yes. all these other things in. So, so I want to underscore and reiterate this point that you made earlier, which is taking this approach of universal design and applying that to marketing actually just across the board is going to improve your marketing. So I just want to say to the, you know, the listeners at this point who are already doing so much because every single one of them is making the world a better place. And that's a big task just to bear that in mind that it's, 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 it may feel a little overwhelming as we, you know, change is always hard and there's no, there's no downside. There's just, yes, no- I, I think I see the light bulb going off. I think it's so exciting. Yeah, totally. I did want to mention um, what the consortium does. I realized I did not mention that earlier. Oh, yes. We talked about it because I asked you about the magic wand. Yeah, the magic wand. Back to that. Yes. So um, what we do is we do workshops and training around a variety of topics because people are hungry for the information and they don't know where to find it. And lots of arts administrators and staff 
operate in silos. I thought that may change with the new normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to be um, a central clearinghouse of resources so that people can go, okay, how do I make captions for all my videos? They can go to the, our website, which will hopefully be in existence by the end of the summer. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, yeah. And well, how do I um, talk to someone who has a disability who comes to my door, to my doors? You know, there'll be a sensitivity training. We provide accessibility audits, sensitivity trainings for staff and board, creating an accessibility plan that you can roll out over time, talking about what it means to market in an accessible way. So that's sort of um, those kind of consultation services that we provide, as well as free and low-cost workshops. But we do depend on donations to keep them going, um, as you know. Yes. Um, we're physically sponsored by Sunpack, as you say okay. that. Okay. Um, yeah, and we've done lots of generous funding from the city of Seattle um, to do these workshops. So it's fantastic. And our next project is going to be a podcast. And I think you have inspired me Aww. to do a podcast where I'm going to interview BIPOC. And by the way, that stands for Black, Indigenous, People of Color. There you go. With disabilities, about their experiences accessing um, you know, civic life and the arts. That's our next project. I 100% hope that this happens. Um, (laughs) And I will talk it up on this podcast for sure. Because just all the voices, you know, podcasting, like a lot of things, you know, we're hearing some different voices, but it's, it's pretty white. It feels pretty white and pretty ableist and gender norming and, you know, a lot of things. So I, I love where you're going with that. Will you share a little bit? So podcasts aren't, I mean, you alluded to this, but they're not really very accessible naturally. And, and just so listeners know this, like you and I, you've been, so, I mean, you've been so wonderful, Elizabeth, because I'm like, <laughs> we're going to have transcripts. Well, now I have to learn all about that. And I'm like, oh, it's service. And oh, and they're not perfect. And then you were so generous because I was like, you know, this is my ignorance. I, I really didn't know. Do they need to be 100% or, you know, 100% accurate? Or is it the case that's like, that's eh, close enough? And you're like, 100% accurate, Eric, and these, you know? Yep, yep, and I yep. so appreciate that. But these are, the, you know, these are the things that I'm certainly still learning. Um, mm-hmm. So can you, so share with us as you think about your podcast, like what are ways that, that they're not naturally accessible to deaf and hard of hearing or deaf blind audiences? And what are some solutions? Well, there's a lot of resources out there. There are, um, uh, what do you call them? The uh, websites, I guess, um, that will do that for you for The transcription free. services. Uh, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, transcription mm-hmm. services. Oh, Thank I can I'm scoping those out. <laughs> yes, and you're the one with the words, so I can rely on you for that. And there are apps like Otter, AI. yes, that you can... You can go in and they'll do a transcript, but you'll have to go in and clean it up a little bit. If you, um, not necessarily for podcast, but if you do a video, you can upload it to YouTube and YouTube does automated caption. But again, you have to go in and correct them. They're, they're not that good, but at least you have something to start with and it's really easy to fix. So there's lots of great resources and I want to do... Um, a shout out to Rooted in Rights. Um, they are a wonderful um, disability um, advocacy organization yes. that puts out amazing resources on how to do 
things like that. So, I think it's rooted in rights.org, but we will definitely yes. put that in the show notes and, and all the other resources that you're mentioning for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you had sent me that resource and I instantly went there and was like, wow. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. All right. So at the end of every interview, I ask guests the same question, which is, so it's about inspiration and motivation and the root of inspiration comes from the idea of breath and to breathe in. And then motivation is about action. So we need both inspiration and motivation to take action. What inspires you and what keeps you motivated to do this work? Well, I am a very goal-oriented person. I need to feel like I'm making an impact every single second of the day. (laughs) So I have to have something to work towards because I find that very tangible and very inspiring to see something good come out of whatever I choose to do. I'm also very inspired by my kids. I learn something from them every day. I mean, my kids are a continual inspiration for me, and they make me want to keep doing the work that I do because I do it partly for them because they both have hearing loss as well, and so they have to navigate this new normal as well. So, yeah. I bet, I bet you're an inspiration to them too, Elizabeth. You are definitely an inspiration to me. I so appreciate you joining me today for this conversation. I was really looking forward to it and I'm unsurprised at how much I have learned. I'm sure listeners have too. Just to help us think differently about access and inclusion and diversity and the whole gamut through this very unique lens that you can offer us. How we can make our marketing more good, um, more gooder by offering like, I mean, some of those practical ways that, that, that you offered for including those who are deaf and hard of hearing into our marketing. And, and for me, I really feel like you gave us an invitation to think about making marketing inclusive and accessible for, for all and to all um, as part of the planning, not as just sort of like a thing that gets tacked on after. Exactly. And um, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. really, really appreciate you having me on your show because I love talking about this and I love talking to you. And I, um, I hope that some of what I have said makes sense. Um, there's a lot more I can say, but I think we touched on some really good points in this conversation. I think so. Tip of the iceberg. But yeah, there's so many other trails, the bunny trails, as I call them, that we could have hopped down. So uh, maybe, we'll maybe a part more. two. <laughs> exactly, a part two and a part three. Uh, I can't wait uh, for your podcast to come out whenever it does. For now, I'll thank the listeners for joining us and for listening and say, do good, be well, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening, and thanks for making our world a better place.